Welcome to KONST. KONST is a podcast by Scandinavian Mind about contemporary and future art, the interconnection with society, culture, technology, finance and lifestyle. The outlook is primarily at the art world from a Scandinavian perspective, although taking into account the global arena of artists, exhibitions, trade fairs and other current events. With me today as a co-host, I have Lina Åstrup. Welcome. Thank you. Delighted uh, to be here. Fantastic. Elina, you are a curator and writer and uh, you have particular interest in contemporary photography and new media art, especially that deals with political and environmental issues of our time. And uh, you have recently finalized your MA thesis where you investigated the intersection of medium-specific qualities of XR, which we are going to unbox what that is, and its potential for disruptive art experiences. Wow, what an intro, Lina. <laughs> yeah, sounds maybe a bit boring, but uh, to me, it's uh, it's fun. It's a fun subject. But listen, um, there's so much to unbox here today, and you know, in this episode of Const, we will also have a guest, Solen Tadros, who joins us uh, a bit later. Um, but uh, I'm so curious about you, Lina. You know, you and I have um, known each other for many, many years, but we have not not really sat down and, and spoken about art and kind of your, your position in the art world. So let's start with uh, curation and then uh, let's, let's unbox also your MA thesis. But, uh, you know, what, what do you do as a curator and what is a curator for the listenings, uh, listeners out there that might not know what that is? Um, a curator is, uh, I mean, if you look at the very basic um, and maybe historical understanding of the word, it's someone who takes care of a collection. Uh, but in recent years, this has um, uh, changed into also someone who could um, set up ex exhibitions on a freelance basis. It doesn't necessarily have to be someone who actually takes care of, an, of a collection, but rather mediates art to an audience. I mean, in practice, um, could you elaborate a little bit more what you have done in the past couple of years as a curator? I have worked with um, both group exhibitions and solo exhibitions. Um, I, I mean, as you already know, but I come, I started this uh, uh, this career sort of late in life. Uh, I was uh, did many years in in the fashion industry previous to this, um, and I started off by doing work for uh, an environmental charity called Project Pressure. Uh, and we did a group exhibition, quite a big one with 13 artists and about 70 works, mm. which was installed at the Natural History Museum in Vienna and then later at the Hohnemann Museum in London. And for me, this was my first ever curating job. Uh, so fantastic I, opportunity, I, right? I, yeah, fantastic opportunity. Uh, I felt like Bambi on ice quite uh, a lot of the time. Uh, but then on the other hand, uh, there was a lot that reminded me of uh, uh, sort of generic processes having to do with project management. Hmm. Um, so, but after that, uh, I realized, um, I also realized that there was a lot more to be learned because I could feel that, okay, from doing that, I could have maybe continued just to work like an exhibition producer, but I wanted more. I wanted to be able to formulate a vision 
um, and to get someone to listen to that as well. Because what I, in, in this process, also realized is uh, that the academic world, which I was never a part of before this, is quite um, uh, uh, elitist in a way that, mm. you know, if you don't have these, uh, these exams and these uh, titles, then, you know, you're not very high up in the hierarchy. So I felt both the need to get uh, academic tools to be able to even do a curators' job well, but also to to sort of engage in the academic system. Hmm. That's kind of, that's interesting. I mean, I think my ambition with this podcast, if there is any ambition, is to kind of try to tie art to the intersections, as I explained in the intro here. <clears throat> of the different parts of society and of course academia is part of society and it's interesting to listen to your observation there i mean it feels to me that um, art in is in itself quite traditional and then you have academia that is also traditional in what way can you then disrupt that intersection is there a way of disrupting the intersection between art and academia i mean for example uh, the people work, who work in like the more artist-run scene, um, like smaller exhibition venues, self-organized groups, um, that type of um, that type of art world or the that sphere, uh, I would say, is in itself sort of a disruption because it um, instead of trying to be accepted in sort of the world of museums and academia. Um, they just, you know, you just go about and do whatever you, whatever you feel is relevant, uh, yeah. and without, you know, needing the validation of some institution or a high-ranking mm. um, uh, sort of curator or whoever. Uh, because I mean, of course, these institutions and people become sort of gatekeepers, and by avoiding that world altogether or that circuit altogether. Um, uh, I would say there is a potential for disruption. Hmm. Interesting. So, listen, I, I was very fascinated when I heard that you were writing this MA thesis. Um, caught my interest. I was nagging you for a long time to, <laughs> to have a look <laughs> at it. It was finally published. Congratulations. Thank um, you. But now let, let's unbox this a bit. So what did you investigate in your thesis? Uh, so... Um, I wanted to look at, uh, I was very curious um, with all the like uh, AR and VR to a certain extent, but mainly AR actually was what caught my eye. Uh, and what is AR first. and VR for the listeners that might oh, not know? So, uh, so basically XR technologies, uh, XR is short for extended reality technologies, and those include uh, different sort of scales on what, is called the reality virtuality continuum. So on one hand, you have VR, which is um, where the user or viewer is uh, completely immersed in a computer-generated world. And AR and MR, MR stands for um, mixed reality and mm -hmm. AR augmented reality, are uh, providing layers of reality uh, that is sort of stacked on top of your physical reality. So uh, providing a view of of several layers at the same time. Okay, um, so that's clear. And 
so the, um, so XR is used as sort of an umbrella term uh, encompassing uh, all these different um, uh, layers of uh, realities, you could say. Um, and what I was interesting is because I, I, you know, I saw these, um, uh, for, for example, the artworks that Acute Art did uh, or has and is still doing. Uh, and I was wondering, like, you know, is this, well, I mean, it may be a boring question, but like, is it art? When is it mm. art and when is it marketing? Um, and I wanted to understand what would, um, what parameters were different uh, in the case of sort of the Snapchat filter gimmick mm-hmm. and the disruptive art experience. Mm. Um so and that's a very it, relevant question. <laughs> so did, did you find out what, what what is the difference? Is that what the I mean? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, uh, it's it is a, it's a broad question, of course, because you know, there's so many parameters to this. Uh, but uh, I decided to focus on um, a couple of them. And uh, I would say uh, one of my key findings was that uh, treating these different mediums included in this umbrella term as one uh, is uh, completely inadequate uh, because it conceals the challenges and merits inherent in each one of them. Mm-hmm. So uh, working as a curator or artist or anyone uh, interested in these mediums, uh, I would say you need to look at each different type specifically um, because otherwise you lose uh, you lose a lot of the disruptive potential in them. Mm-hmm. Can um, I ask, uh, I mean, so I don't forget to ask this question. <laughs> so basically, mm-hmm. is there, I mean, art, um, there's always, within art, artists have always used different kind of tools and technologies to uh, produce art or make art or to, you know. Um, so there is, let's say, an openness to using different tools, right? But has mm-hmm. there been any reluctance or hesitance from the art community uh, in using these new technologies? Such, I mean, the ones that you're explaining about, uh, or is, is that just natural continuation of all the different tools that have been used for thousands of years by artists? Mm, I think it's a natural continuation. Okay. Um, for, for, I mean, for some. For some, it's definitely not just like some, you know, some artists only work in painting and some mm-hmm. minimalist sculptures. Um, it's totally up to the artist in question, I would say. But uh, but I would say, yes, you could definitely make art in these mediums. Um, but it's a matter of seeing them uh, as, I would say, highly context dependent. So when creating for example, an AR work, which is was very evident when I compared like a curated AR exhibition with uh, simply using the AR filter myself, uh, was that um, unless you consider the, the entire augmented space, which is uh, uh, not my term, it's Lev Manovich who came up with that, but mm-hmm. um, if you look, you have to look at the complete augmented space uh, because the disruptive quality in most cases lies in the friction between uh, the augmented layer and the physical layer. 
And unless you consider both those realities, um, your potential for creating a disruptive art experience is um, uh, minimized, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And this also relates to how VR is presented, because if you take a VR work and you uh, don't consider the body of the viewer or where, you know, where the feet are actually standing when you put on the goggles, um, you, could, uh, you could say that you address the viewer in a totalizing voice, meaning that um, the singularity of vision provided by the VR goggles uh, does instead of embracing sort of a multitude of realities, mm -hmm. uh, they are simply exchanging one reality for another. Mm -hmm. And that is uh, in terms of creating disruption um, to sort of slim your chances. Unless you're very familiar with all these different terms and technologies. And as a side note, I mean, it's part of my profession to work with the new technologies and, 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 and technical innovation. Um, but if you're a layperson, you know, you have an interest in art or you, you, you're curious about art, you're curious about new technologies, but you're not an expert. Um, this can be quite complicated and technical, right? So for a layperson, um, what is the, 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 the main difference of experiencing art with some sort of XR technology and experiencing art in, let's say, a, in a museum or art gallery or at home, or is there a difference or is it just perception as you, I mean, kind of? No, I would say the difference in many cases lies in the fact that you need quite advanced technology uh, to be able to access it. Mm -hmm. And these technologies can be quite restrictive to the art experience unless they are uh, of like high quality and very well maintained so let's say for example you put on a vr goggles they're quite heavy mm -hmm. uh, if you need glasses to see this might be a problem because how will they yeah. fit inside and mm -hmm. you know uh, it's uncomfortable and then if there's a cord attached then you can't actually move around as much as maybe mm -hmm. you'd want to and you're scared that you're going to trip over um you can feel you know you get seasick there are all sorts of things that uh, that can happen and if you know, if it's a, for example, when I was doing this, um, uh, the thesis, I went to London to research. And one of the works that I was planning on using as a case study was uh, just did not work. I stood outside the Serpentine Galleries for two hours trying to get the, uh, the AR filter to work and it just <laughs> didn't. Um, you know, and you stand there with your phone feeling more and more stupid increasingly by the minute. Mm. Uh, and no one can help and it's just you know a lot of the times also like museum staff are maybe not trained for this specific um, technology so mm -hmm. you really need like a specialized um, uh, staff I would say to take care of these artworks. So there's an accessibility issue then I mean uh, if we talk about art uh, in the best possible way should be accessible to anyone anywhere right um, but then we have this elitist element of art as well which i mean if, if you have any kind of interest in fine art obviously the whole si art system is quite elitist but um how can you get around this kind of lack of accessibility then in 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 the um, digital art, sp art space mm, i think it has to do i mean first of all like you you if you're doing a if people should use their own phones, for example, uh, many of the AR filters that uh, exist 
are maybe not compatible with older phones, for example. Um, and so if you, I would say if you have them in a museum or institution setting, um, I would make sure to always have staff on hand that would sort of guide people through the experience uh, and to provide all the tech uh, or like all the hardware needed uh, in the space uh, so that people don't have to like download stuff on their own uh, phones or try and, you know, mm-hmm. um, because especially I think uh, maybe for older generations, this can become a huge problem that just doesn't make it worth its while, I think. So, I mean, you will definitely come back on this show that I know, <laughs> I think is, uh, <laughs> so, so much more to unbox on, on, on the, especially, um, I mean, this whole new space uh, of art is, is going to explode. I mean, we discuss about it uh, in, at Scandinavian Mind in general. I mean, this whole kind of uh, space of tech, uh, NFTs, metaverse, and the way you kind of experience these intersections between art and fashion, etc. I mean, there's so much more to unbox here. But uh, time is scarce, Lina. Um, if we let's say after this, these kind of uh, 10 minutes, 15 minutes of <laughs> talking about your thesis, if you would like to summarize it in a couple of sentences, like what if a listener would read your thesis, what will they learn and why should they read it? Why should they Google it? Uh, gosh, um, I think the biggest takeaway, at least for me, was to understand Uh, or to have a critical perspective on immersion as such. I think immersion has such a, um, it's a a term that people use uh, without really knowing what it entails. And I think in order to understand any of these uh, technologies and art that function or communicates in this way, you must understand how immersion works and when, what the difference is between sort of uh, a sensorial overload and something that is uh, uh, something that can give the viewer a long-term intellectual and emotional engagement. And that is something that I, uh, I think is the biggest takeaway with my thesis, actually. All right, Lena. Well, that was really interesting listening to your thoughts on XR art. And uh, as said, you know, let's continue the dialogue around this. Um, you definitely need to come back on the show. But now, today's guest, uh, I'm super, super excited to have Solène Tadros uh, joining us as a guest today. Hi, Solène. Hi, how are you? Fantastic. Um, Thank you for having me. So you are a Jordanian-Palestinian creative technologist and artist with a design and technology degree from Parsons School of Design. Mm-hmm. Um, you see yourself as, as a kind of storyteller reflecting on social, political, and environmental matters. And this is something we're going to discuss more about today, right? And unbox. And you are uh, working a lot in this intersection between technology and art. And you, you, you explore, you, uh, you know, how to express art with new technologies. And you have exhibited in film festivals. Um, you've been featured in magazines like Vo- US Vogue, uh, Vogue España, and much more. I mean, it's it's fantastic resume. So thank super you. excited to have you uh, on the show, Solen. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And thank you for the introduction. 
So uh, as, as a feature in the show, uh, we have this, um, th this question that uh, the previous guest asked um, this episode's guest, right? So in, in, in the last show, we had uh, Destiny Ross Sutton, who's mm -hmm. an acclaimed curator uh, in the US. Uh, she uh, basically is asking you now, Solem, uh, mm -hmm. if you would pick uh, one piece of art or one art experience that has made the strongest impression on you, what would you then pick? Oh my God, this one is a hard one. I've When I went into the art slash design world, I never did it because I was drawn to art in specific. I was just drawn... Uh, into innovation and specifically Steve Jobs and Apple and all that he was doing. Um, so it's very difficult for me to choose an artwork that really resonated with me and pushed me, I don't know, resonated with me and stuck with me and, and inspired me to become an artist myself. I was just really drawn into different forms of technology that we can use as a medium for storytelling. And mm. that really got me going in this space. So maybe an experience that resonated with me or like kickstarted my journey in XR is I did a VR experience where I had to jump off a building and just seeing the power that had over me and my emotions really compelled me to start working with VR as a technology for storytelling because I saw how impactful it was as a medium. So I don't know if this really answers her question specifically. It might deviate a bit, but that's something like VR as a technology is something that resonated with me, I think, for as an artistic medium. Wow, fantastic. So listen, I, I, I'm curious now. So obviously, um, if you have ever experienced some sort of virtual reality mm. um, experience, I mean, it, it is, as you say, it takes over you. It's, it's very emotional. It's, it's very mm -hmm. physical, right? Uh, yeah. Could you elaborate a little bit on that first experience that you had and, you know, what, what, what happened then? It was pretty crazy. All I had to do was put on a VR headset and I was standing on the top of a building and all I had to do was take one step forward and I would have, I would have been jumping off that building. And it took me a really long time. And I, I mean, one, two, three, four minutes to get myself to take that step forward and jump. And when I did, I actually fell to the ground because I felt like I was falling and my heart <laughs> dropped to my feet. And I was like, oh, my goodness, like that for me was insane. So that was my first crazy experience with VR where I was like, oh, my God, like this can really do things to people. It can move people. So, so uh, I'm curious, um, how did you and Carolina meet? And, uh, and please, Lina, I mean, feel free to inject also your, your view on this and kind of your reflections on your first meeting. Um, well, maybe I should start since I was the one who reached out to Solan sure. uh, a while back. Um, I actually found Solan on Instagram uh, because uh, an artist I know, Adam Broomberg, mm -hmm. was um, um, featuring her work on his uh, Instagram. And um, I found it so uh, interesting that I reached out, uh, basically. And um, um, because also, obviously, since what we talked about before, uh, since I have, uh, you know, a keen interest in this type of medium, uh, but also in, 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 like, political art in general, I guess, or, you know, interesting topics that go beyond just, like, a sensorial sensation. Or, mm. um, and for me, Solen, sort of, her work ticked all those boxes of what I'm interested in. 
So, Solen, what was your reaction when Lena reached out to you? Well, I mean, I'm just curious. I, I love these kind of stories. You know, it, this is how the world works at the moment. You know, it's very yeah. crazy because when Lena reached out to me, it had been already four years since I started my VR project where I recreated my grandmother's memory of her childhood bedroom in Palestine in VR. I only made that project in 2018 to show it to my grandmother. But it's been jumping from one country to another, being showcased at exhibitions, and it's been growing organically, which to me is so crazy because I literally just did this for my grandmother's eyes. That was my intention at the time. But then I realized it was so much more to other people because it was a political piece, because I was using VR for as a form of storytelling. Um, it resonated because it was political, number one. Number two, because people were so new to VR, VR was even more impactful for them as an experience. So I just feel because it grew organically, I'm, I'm really, really thankful that people are willing to continue sharing the Palestinian story and the Palestinian cause. And I really do thank the power of VR for that as a storytelling medium. So yeah, I'm, I'm thankful Lena reached out to me and is having me as part of her exhibition. So for the listeners out there and the readers that follow us on Scandinavia Mind, could you explain a little bit more in detail this? I mean, what uh, piece of art are you referring to? And, you know, yeah, yeah elaborate. So it was 2017 and I was working on my thesis project at Parsons. Um, during that time, there was footage of the Syrian refugee crisis that was going all over the news. Um, and none of my peers, I was in New York, none of my peers bat an eye. Uh, they were super numb to the fact that in the Middle East there were refugees uh, seeking asylum elsewhere. But for me, every time I saw a picture of um, a Syrian in the ocean or just on the streets, mm. it would break my heart and it actually would trigger me. I'd start crying. So that triggered me to see why I resonated with that story so much. And my grandmother is a Palestinian and she was once a Palestinian refugee, but I never knew her story. So this whole crisis triggered me to getting to know my heritage and how I tie into this crisis, this refugee crisis myself, generationally. So I sat down with my grandmother, who I never knew her story as a Palestinian, and I told her, what was it like living in Palestine? What was it like leaving Palestine? Uh, I recorded all of those interviews, but then because I was so interested in the power of virtual reality as a storytelling medium, I was like, okay, how can I use VR to try to take her back home and to show people who would be viewing this VR scene at some point that behind the word refugee, there was a story and a life that was left behind because the narrative they have of refugees is so skewed that I had to find a way to kind of shift the way the story was being told. So I sat down with my grandmother and I said, please, can you illustrate for me your last memory of your childhood bedroom in Palestine in 1948? Mm. She was 13 years old at the time. That was the last time she saw her bedroom. And she was 85 years old when I asked her to do this illustration. So I wasn't too sure how much she would have remembered, but she took out all her coloring pencils and started drawing in detail all the elements of her bedroom and what wow. she could see outside of her window and the tiling and... Um, her bed and her sheets and how, what everything looked like. And she really went into detail. So I took that illustration and I did the best that I could in trying to translate the, the illustration into a VR experience for her. Um, the, the surrounding scene of the VR experience is actually a Google Maps 360 screenshot of her neighborhood in Palestine, in Palestine. Mm -hmm. uh, but I went into that screenshot and I removed all traces of the occupation, all of the graffiti on the, on the walls and the streets. I changed the store signs so that they could resemble store signs of her time to really make it as nostalgic as possible for her and show other people what 
the life of a Palestinian was before the occupation in VR. Can, can I ask you, I mean, there's one element that uh, makes me very curious here. Why do you think she remembers this so vividly? I mean, I am not sure how old you both are, but uh, I, I cannot remember my, my, my bedrooms when I was 13, right? I think, you, it's, yeah. I think it's different when we're just thinking back to a memory, but for her, that was the beginning of her trauma. Mm. Um, and I think for her, that was like a major checkpoint in the way, like it, that moment changed the trajectory of her life. Ever since then, she has never found a sense of belonging and her childhood bedroom slash her, her home in Palestine mm. was one of the only times she probably felt a sense of safety and community and belonging and roots. So I think it meant a lot to her to remember that space. Uh, yeah, I just wanted to also add that, I mean, one uh, part of why this is also such an interesting uh, work is because uh, only in 2020, uh, one in 95 people were forcibly displaced, were living forcibly displaced uh, globally. That is uh, 82.4 million people. Uh, and that's in 2020. So, um, you know, this is not something that just happens to uh, a minority of people. I mean, yeah, a minority, but a huge number of people. Um, so, I mean, for me also when... Um, uh, I came across this work, uh, which is called Pre-Exodus, by the way. Uh, uh, I saw, as I see it, there are like four very interesting trajectories that can be opened up from this work. Um, one is intergenerational trauma, uh, which is, of course, both a general and, a, and a, an individual uh, condition. Uh, there is the question of loss of land. Uh, how do you deal with loss of land? Uh, you know, some scholars say that loss of land uh, can be equal to the loss of a person. Um, yeah. And um, there's also the, um, uh, the, the being in exile or being stateless question of uh, how do you mourn something that you might at some stage get back or that you very uh, fervently want back? Um, and because there's not really, you know, you don't, you can't grieve like someone who died because there's, there's still, it's still there, the potentiality of it. And then there's also, there's an architecture perspective to the work, of course, you know, what is a home, mm -hmm. uh, the intimacy of a bedroom, uh, what does it mean to feel a connection to your, uh, community, uh, et cetera. Um, and, um, and also the question of cultural heritage. Uh, and in this case, I think immersive technologies is a very interesting aspect because you can ask yourself, you know, how do you archive and classify XR mediums, for example, within a museum collection? Mm -hmm. um, how can VR or can VR even be uh, a substitute to physical experience, um, et cetera? So there's like so many different strands yeah. Uh, that are activated or could be activated with this work. In regards to trying to recollect the memory of a home, it was pretty difficult for me. And I thought when I was doing this for my grandmother, I'm like, I'm going to take her back to Palestine. And I think mm. as an artist, I learned how naive that was. And I don't think any type of technology is a substitute for real human sensory experience. 
And I, I don't want anyone to mistaken that when they are in this VR scene or mm. when they're in any VR scene, that they're going to be able to experience something the same way they would in real life, because that's just offensive to the physical space, which is the primary space people experience things in emotionally, physically, et cetera, et cetera. So how, how has the response been? I mean, it's been many years now, you say, and kind of yeah. traveling around the world, et cetera. But ha- has the response evolved over time also? I think, I don't think it's evolved over time. I think since I've showcased this work over the past four years, everyone's, um, I don't know, it's not getting more impactful based on the time that has been passing. Mm. And for every single individual that's experienced it, some people leave it crying. Some people leave it saying, oh my God, now I remember what I'm fighting for because the Palestinian cause for many of us as uh, I'm, I'm the granddaughter of a Palestinian refugee, I've never been to Palestine. So what I'm fighting for is extremely, extremely abstract. Mm-hmm. I, I've never been to the land. All I know are these memories. So to keep the cause alive, I think, oh, I don't know. There's, oh my God, there's so much, there's so much to it. But looking at the notes that people have left me in these notebooks of the, of the experience, for example, one of them that's in front of me, for someone who's never seen her origin hometown, this is moving. I'm overwhelmed with longing to be there. Thank you for this experience. We're all Layla in our own way. Layla is my grandmother. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the people, so basically for the people who entered the exhibition and tried this experience, if they were from my age, like millennials, they were like, wow, this is a great way to use this technology. Oh my God, it's Palestine. I'm back in Palestine. But for the older generation, Every time they leave this experience, it would start triggering other memories of them being in Palestine and then going to Lebanon and then what those memories were like in Lebanon. And it just it made me remember that my grandmother is one of millions and millions who's who's been nomadic since they were children, Mm. which is so crazy that people have been missing their sense of belonging for so many years, which is resulting in my generation also feeling like they don't know where they belong. And also fighting for a cause that they've never seen physically in a physical space. Mm. Um, so those are some of the conversations that arose after people were um, in the VR experience. And how much has it been, let's say, um, approved or acknowledged by, I mean, there, there are other refugees, other political causes, other challenges in societies, mm-hmm. right? Uh, globally, I mean, we have the Ukraine war happening at the moment, which is obviously... In, our part of the world is dominating yeah. everyday life, right? Um, but I, I, I assume this piece of work would resonate with, with anyone having this, this kind of, I mean. Yeah, that's the point. I, so the thing is, the reason why I chose a childhood bedroom, although this, this project was targeted to my grandmother, the reason why I chose a bedroom and not any sort of Palestinian cultural site, etc., is because I wanted anyone that was in this space to be able to resonate with it. Because the moment someone is labeled refugee, they are considered subhuman. No one can see eye to eye with them. You don't even think of treating them equally or treating them the way you'd want to be treated. So putting someone in someone else's bedroom is like, oh, wait, this person lived a life similar to mine. This person is human. And when we stop categorizing them as subhuman, I feel like that's the first step. Just seeing people as equals, changing that narrative, and only then can people start helping others. Um, So there was a play on words. I think even when I was working on this project, I never, ever used the word refugee 
in my thesis paper, I always use the word man caused displacement. So we don't look at people as refugees. We think of the source and the trigger and the root cause of the situation rather than the after effects. I mean, my grandmother wasn't born to be a refugee. She became one. Mm. And where a- are you based now? In, in, in uh, your- I'm in Amman. I'm in Amman yeah. right now. Yeah, I'm between Amman and Toronto. Okay. And, and uh, I mean, <laughs> this is maybe opening up a totally different topic here, but how's the art scene in Jordan? Honestly, it's doing really, really well. Um, there are so many young creatives um, that are, it's, it's booming. The scene here is booming. There's artists of all kinds. You have 3D designers, you have fine arts, you have um, DJs. It's all happening here, but it's just funny to me that for the longest time, we were looking for validation from um, publications in the West mm-hmm. to really validate our art. But now we have our own publications, our own magazines, our mm-hmm. own exhibitions going on, highlighting local talent, which is, I think, a great step uh, forward. That's fantastic. Yeah. And I, I think you're, you're onto something there that even though we live in a global uh, age, um, there's there might be so many different there's so many differences in terms of culture and in the way we view the world that, mm-hmm. I mean, there's no way where maybe a Western publication could acknowledge um, properly uh, art coming from uh, Jordan or other parts of the world, right? Uh, so th- th- that's a challenge uh, as well. Um, but so I, I'm just curious in the other way around, how much or not do you know about the Scandinavian art scene? Honestly, I don't know too much. To be honest, I, I, I don't know that much. Um, I learned briefly, I think, about European art in high school. Mm-hmm. But ever since then, like, I really have never, I've never dived into art. I've, I've been more focused on technology. And any story I'd like to share, I've been just focusing on technology from different parts of the world rather than art from a specific region. So, so what are you working on now? Oh, sorry, Elena, go ahead. Yeah, no, uh, I was just going to say that um, uh, luckily for us, uh, uh, Solan is actually coming here uh, in the for the end of April for an exhibition that we're doing um, in relation to the Mona Hatoum show at Accelerator. Um, so hopefully, uh, which is also coinciding actually with the market uh, art fair. So hopefully, we can maybe uh, make sure that you see a bit some more um, Scandinavian art when you're here. For sure, I'd love that. That's fantastic. So then we will definitely uh, host you as best as we can. <laughs> um, but listen, I'm curious, uh, you know, it was four years since you, you, you did your breakthrough piece. Uh, what are you working on at the moment? Uh, what are you planning for uh, the future? Plans for the future? <laughs> I don't plan for the future anymore. I think I take <laughs> one month at a time. And I think the exhibition that's coming up, um, in Stockholm with Lena, I'm just upgrading the virtual reality scene to add some more interactivity to the scene, make it a bit more accurate to my grandmother's memory, polishing it up, um, rather than have people come into the VR scene and think, oh, I'm just Leila, the girl who was Palestinian in the scene. I want them to think of themselves as the occupier as well and what type of entitlement someone must have in order to occupy someone else's space. So really just upgrading and polishing the project I did in 2018 for the exhibition. Mm -hmm. But future projects, um, I'm honestly not too sure. But you recently did uh, an NFT piece. Maybe that wasn't your first, but would you tell us a bit more about that? 
Yeah, so I worked on a digital art piece called The Algorithm is Obsessed with Me. And it was my way of giving the algorithm human characteristics because I feel like as human beings now, we're so aware of our mental health and creating boundaries between one person and another if we feel like they're toxic. But I feel like one of the most toxic things in my life during these times is technology mm-hmm. and I've never known how to create a boundary between me and technology um, so by saying the algorithm is obsessed with me it's creating in my head I was giving it this um, I was romanticizing the algorithm and giving it this like obsessed lover type of vibe <laughs> but like actually if the algorithm was a human being we would be more conscious and um We we'll probably, we'll probably jail that uh, yeah. algorithm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it's pretty crazy. Like, um, I wrote a poem that you can unlock when you do buy that NFT, just speaking about um, how I spend so much time with the algorithm. And the more time I spend with it, the more it becomes like me. And it's as if we're soulmates and all those things. But you never find out the poem is about the algorithm until the end. Um, because I want you to be able to confuse the algorithm with a human being to give hmm. it those types of human characteristics. And it's, I, I think the, the play on words is trying to get at the fact that the love story I envisioned um, in my 20s, I actually got all of that attention from the algorithm, which is <laughs> creepy. Um, so that's the NFT that I worked on that was exhibited in Art Dubai 2022 in their first um, digital NFT section. Uh, and so, on which platform can you purchase the NFT? Um, it was actually uploaded on OpenSea by the gallery itself, which okay. um, uh, if you are someone who's into NFTs, you'd know that that's um, intellectual property theft. Basically, no one is allowed to upload yeah. or mint an artwork on behalf of an artist for so, so many reasons. Uh, I thought my gallery was uh, just acting like all the other galleries in Art Dubai, minting everyone's artwork onto OpenSea, but it was just my gallery. So Mm -hmm. um, I'm not sure if you want to make this a part of the podcast, but I called them out and I said, please take it down. This is considered theft because you're taking ownership of my work in the digital space and you're diluting my sense of ownership in the digital space. So they were kind enough to take down my art while many other artists have their artwork minted on their behalf. Um, so I might be uploading it soon onto Super Rare. Okay, um, yeah, as my, that's much better. <laughs> yes, as my own owner of my own artwork. Sure, a better uh, platform, I think, as well. Yes, yeah. for sure. Yeah. Wow, okay, that's quite an interesting story. That's actually something to unbox for another episode, kind for of... Sure. Uh, we, you know, at Scandinavian Mind, we we uh, cover a lot uh, in the NFT space and metaverse, etc., but, really uh, I never heard about uh, um, anything like that, actually. Quite interesting. Wow. Okay, but uh, good for you that they actually uh, listened to you then. They did, but I just feel like um, we, as artists, we should be so much more careful because we're all dying for exposure. Mm-hmm. We're all dying to base our, our income off of our art to the point where sometimes we allow greater organizations to take advantage of our potential to create and our art um so this was probably my first time in the gallery space where I felt like I was being used just so galleries can say they've participated in some sort of fair and me as a creator as an artist who put so much time and energy into creating a story I was brushed aside so that was a big lesson (laughs) Maybe a good lesson. I mean, and for the listeners out lesson. there, if you're an artist, you know, and you're exploring NFTs, be very careful. <laughs> right? For sure. For sure. 
Yeah. So, Solen, I mean, this is a podcast. Um, it's not a long format. So, we, unfortunately, we have to um, uh, finish uh, mm-hmm. this, this conversation. But uh, you're coming to Sweden. Uh, Lina, uh, can you again repeat? So, what's going to happen later during the spring? Yeah. So, uh, we're in connection to the Monatum show at Accelerator. Um, we will be uh, hosting uh, Solen's work pre Exodus. Um, so you will be able to come and experience the VR piece uh, that we've just been talking about. Um, we will also have an artist talk between Selene and some of the researchers um, at the opening, which is on the 27th of April. And then the work will be on site on the 28th, 29th and the 30th. So swing by. Please do. Definitely. And uh... Solen, now you have the privilege to ask the next guest a question. So what would you like to ask? Do I have any idea at all what the next podcast is going to be? You have no idea. Oh my god. But it's 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 going to be someone in art. <laughs> That's for sure. That's what the whole podcast is about. So yeah. Ooh. Because I'm the creator that I am and I've focused on my own artwork the way that I have, what do they think about the parallel between um, people owning things in the physical space versus their ownership in the digital space where in the physical space, things can be robbed and in the digital space, things have more of transparency and um, um I'm trying to get at this in the sense that I, I could rephrase this question, but basically there's a huge technological gap and the sense of ownership in people of a privileged space where they can really declare their sense of ownership using the blockchain versus those that don't have access to technology to claim their sense of ownership. I really want to know what they think about that. Do you know? Do you, do you understand what I mean? I understand. And uh, I, I, I look forward to bring this question to the next guest. Okay, perfect. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Solan Tadros. Uh, it was a huge privilege to have you as a guest on the show. Um, Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much. Wow, Lina, what a fantastic uh, guest. Thank you so much for, for uh, introducing me to Solan. Um, Thank you for having us both. Yeah, so what, what do you think? Um, what do you think will be kind of the the big topics in the art world during this year? Um, <clears throat> I mean, I would say the art world um, in general reflects the big issues of our time. Um, so with uh, Russia's aggression on war on Ukraine, uh, I would say, you know, war and migration uh, and also, I think um, the nation state mm-hmm. uh, as a sort of a general term of uh, as a power structure, uh, it comes into play very much. Mm. So it, it seems to me that this is going to be quite a serious year in the world of art, right? If last year was a lot about play and exploring new technologies and the NFT boom and I mean, uh, 2022 is much more about seriousness and a reminder of that life is not always rosy. Uh, well, yeah, I guess because, you know, what else to think about? Mm. It's quite gloom when you, you know, the outlook. Yeah. 
sadly. So <laughs> we're not going to end the show <laughs> like this. <laughs> that would be okay, so... depressing end note. <laughs> no, no, but okay. So yes, we agree on that. Uh, obviously, that's going to color uh, not only this year, but I guess the next decade, not only in the world of art, but uh, in our part of the world, unfortunately. Uh, but uh, on, on, let's say, a more inspirational note, uh, what do you look forward to in the next couple of months? Mm. I look forward to seeing, uh, well, I look forward to, of course, uh, uh, the exhibition I'm doing, but I'm mm -hmm. also looking forward to um, developments of a more organic kind of metaverse and to see mm -hmm. how um, uh, artists continue working to sort of counteract uh, the, the corporatization and of uh, of both metaverses, but also I'm thinking of uh, our imagination. Um, I think uh, one of the most interesting thing with imagining metaverses is that they could be anything we want, but how far can we stray or will we stray from what we already know? Hmm. Interesting. So, Lina, I think... Um... We have, uh, unfortunately, we have to end this. Uh, Lina Åstrup, thank you again for joining me as a co-host. Uh, it was fantastic. You will be back. Let's continue to unbox uh, the role of new technology in art. Thank you so much for having me. It's been, uh, it's been great to talk to you and to be able to talk to Selene about all these matters that uh, are so close to my heart. And sorry if I've been too detailed or boring. <laughs> don't don't be sorry uh, so to all our listeners thank you this was cons a podcast by scandinavian mind about contemporary and future art you will find the show notes uh, and more information in all our channels on our dot com instagram facebook linkedin etc thank you